And then there's this other group of people, which is probably the majority of people that are really good at remembering their failures, but not remembering their successes. And if you're not good at remembering both in the right proportion, you can't have a really good gut feel because the gut feel is really about your experience. What's going on, guys? This is Passive Wealth Strategies for Busy Professionals. Thank you for tuning in. This is a show where we combine the fire movement and real estate, bringing you the best information from the financial independence, retire early movement and community, and the best information, the best experts in the real estate investing world, melding the two together to get your investments in the most proven asset class in history, which is real estate. Today, we are talking about data-driven real estate investing with one of the premier experts in this topic, Neil Bawa from Multifamily University. This is a fantastic conversation. You're gonna learn what is important, what data is important, why data is important in real estate investing, what to look for, how to get it, how to get that data, how to focus on it, what to do with your own emotions is what I should say. I'm gonna let you tune in and listen because it's not a matter of being emotionless. It's really more of acknowledging, dealing with, and keeping your emotions out of play and staying data-driven and data-focused. So I love that. We get into a bit of discussion as well about where the market is today and where it, where Neil thinks it's going to go over the next market cycle, maybe the next seven years or so. We also discuss why people have been so successful in real estate, why most people have been so successful in real estate over the last seven years over this market cycle, and really what that means for the future and moving forward. Fascinating discussion. I'm going to have to have him back on the show to talk about some more of the things that we discussed today. And you'll learn that when you uh, get into the interview. You're going to be sending me a, an email or a text if, if you have my number saying, get him back on the show. I certainly want that. Well, anyway, for those of you who are new to the show, I'm your host, Taylor Lote. I'm a real estate investor, real estate syndicator. I buy apartment buildings with passive investors and split the return. Love talking about these topics. Love talking about data as someone with an engineering background and all about the data. Without any further ado, here we go with Neil Bawa from Multifamily University. Neil, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me on the show, Taylor. Excited to be here. Great to talk with you. You're one of the movers and shakers out there. But for the folks who somehow don't know who you are, can you tell us a little bit about your background before we dive into what we're going to talk about today? Yeah, I'm a recovering technologist that has had a successful tech career, successful tech exit, and fell into real estate by accident through my technology job when my CEO asked me to help him build a custom campus from scratch. So there's a technology company doing well, lots of money, decided we didn't want to be renters and built a campus from scratch. And that was 2003. And I fell in love with real estate. Haven't looked back since. Nice. Awesome. And really, you've kind of driven or been the most data-driven investor, at least that I've seen. And today, I wanted to talk with you about what it means to be a data-driven real estate investor. And then we'll get into some of the current environment. But to make sure we understand the principles of what it means to be data-driven. Tell us about that. I mean, give us the basics of being data-driven in real estate. 
I think it's about measuring everything. So it's about having a culture in your company. And maybe your company is just two guys, just you and your virtual assistant or you and your underwriter. But having this culture from the very beginning saying, if we cannot measure it, we cannot manage it. And, and it's, it's, a, it's a culture where you manage and measure everything. Like this week today, I went into a meeting where we were measuring the number of people we're getting from Instagram you know, what, what's happening there, right? And what is that leading to? A lot of people are like, oh, I got like 200 new follows on Instagram. The question is, that's not being data-driven. The question is, how many of those 200 are at different points in their life cycle towards becoming an investor or towards selling your building, right? So where does that take you? And that journey to measure everything that can affect the performance of your business, you know, when you roll it up together, that's you being data-driven, right? So we live by, by two mantras in, in a data-driven company. And I, I think that these mantras have to exist in any company that's data-driven. Number one is that you cannot manage what you cannot measure. So if you're not measuring, if you're doing gut feeling, you're saying, I think I'm doing okay, you're not data-driven. You're just, you know, you're just being data-driven when you have to. And the second mantra is that data beats gut feel by a million miles. So you really have to take that gut feel away. And that's really hard for people, especially older people that think that their gut feel is very beneficial. And what we've found is that as is typical of non-data-driven people, the people that think that gut feel work are the people that have never really measured the impact of gut feel. Mm. Because if they had, they wouldn't be saying what they're saying. Because the truth is that human beings are very unusual in the way that they remember their failures and successes. So some of us only remember our successes. President Trump is a great example, a person that remembers his successes really well, but not so good with failures, right? <laughs> and then we have another, yeah, I mean, you know, come on. Uh, you know, I, this isn't a political thing, but I, obviously as, on a personal basis, I think he's pretty good at knowing his, his successes. And then there's this other group of people, which is probably the majority of people that are really good at remembering their failures but not remembering their successes. And if you're not good at remembering both in the right proportion, you can't have a really good gut feel because the gut feel is really about your experience. And if your memory of both your failures and your successes and your relative success and failure is not very organized, then your gut is more likely to take you in the wrong direction than the right direction. And so what we do end up remembering is whenever our gut is right, we'll remember it. Whenever our gut is wrong, we'll ignore it. And so we'll say, I have a great gut feel. So what we found actually is gut feel sucks. Human <laughs> beings really, really suck at gut feel. And so we try very hard to stay away from gut feel. And so people say, so Neil, do you don't use gut feel? The answer is no, I fight against my gut feel every day. Like I'm in meetings, like earlier today, I was in a meeting about a property. And this property happened to be in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. I generally have a very positive impression of North Carolina, you know, in my... 2020 trends presentation, which about 20,000 people watch. I named Raleigh and Charlotte as our first ever tie of best cities to invest in. So for 2020, we did a tie. So Raleigh and Charlotte, they're both North Carolina cities. For the previous two years before that, it was Boise, Idaho. For the previous two years before that, it was Provo, Utah. And so two North Carolina superpower cities came in number one. So obviously Winston-Salem is you know a tertiary market that's fairly close to these. I went into this meeting looking at the numbers with a very positive impression. And I can tell you in 40 minutes, the data that my team pulled for me beat the shit out of my gut. 
right? At the end, my gut was this puddle of blood just dying there. And that was the end of that project. And that's what it means to be data-driven. Being data-driven means that you get to torture yourself every day and say no way more than you would say yes. Way, way more than you would say yes. Interesting. Okay. So I can tell you from my personal experience in you know my career, everything, learning about my own uh, biases, if you will, is learning to focus on the right detail. And what I'm hearing here is, or what I'm thinking here is like, how do you know what pieces of data to focus on? Because it's rare that there's like, check, 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 checks all the boxes. Yes, it's good to go. There's some positives and negatives and you weigh those both. But how do you know which are more important? I mean, it's a fairly broad question, but how do you really drill down what details, what data to focus on? I'm going to give you the Timothy Ferris answer. Do you know who Timothy Ferris is? Right? I do. Tim Ferriss, yeah. right? So Tim Ferris spends an enormous amount of his time interviewing highly successful people. His Titans book is where he basically interviews everything from Olympic athletes to weightlifters to people that are phenomenal at business, to people that are phenomenal at music, right? And and that's what I tend to do. When I am talking to my peers, I'm presenting at a conference, I'm you know backstage, I'm waiting for you know things to go up. The questions that I'm asking people are about their successes. And they say, you know, so I say, you know, what's your most successful project? And he says, oh, you know, I, I had this property in Florida and here's what we did. And my question always is, so, so John, what really mattered there? What was the one thing in this project that made it successful? I'm sure you're measuring dozens of things. And they come back and say, here's what mattered. And then I basically internalize that because here's a very successful person telling me what mattered most. And if you go around repeating that process, asking the same question over and over from very successful people, you will start to see patterns. Just like Timothy Ferris's book, I think Tools of Titans is the name of this book. Phenomenal book, very hard to read because it's, it's like, 200 different case studies. So I usually read it like two or three case studies at a time in my miracle morning time. And when I'm looking at it, I realize that what Tim is doing is that he's looking for patterns. If you ask a hundred people, right? Pretty much the same question. And you look for what patterns exist. Those patterns are not very visible to people. They should be right. But it's amazing that those patterns are not, you know, visible to people. So what we found what we've actually found is this, and this is super counterintuitive to people that are in the apartment business. It, the success that the vast majority of the industry has had in the last seven years was not based on their management of the property. It wasn't. It was actually based on where the property was, the initial pick, the city, the neighborhood, the incomes of that neighborhood. How fast was that neighborhood going up? What else was happening in the neighborhood? That drove the vast majority of investor profit. And we don't like to say that because by saying it on a podcast, I'm actually putting myself down. I'm telling people it wasn't my management that really led to the success of it. But as data-driven people, we have to tell people the truth, right? And the truth was it was the pick of the city and the neighborhood. Then it was the pick of the property. Then it was us, right? Now, I could make myself feel better by saying, but yeah, but I was the one that picked the city and I was the one that picked the property. Exactly. So really, it, obviously you play a role in it, but the role really is not as much about management or business plan. A lot of success that people have had have come back from their picks of cities and their picks of neighborhoods. You know, what, what's interesting is 
let's say, you know, Taylor bought a property five years ago in Dallas and he sold it today. And he said he would double investor money and he more than doubled investor money, right? How often do you think syndicators like Taylor actually go back through their business plan and say, okay, so we, we did it, we were successful, but why were we successful? People don't do that because success doesn't invite analysis, failure does. When you succeed, you're like, I did it. But maybe everything that you did in that property, Taylor failed. What succeeded was that you picked the right place, Dallas, and you had this all ships rising effect. And so you ended up selling at a cap rate that was half a cap lower than your purchase cap, where you projected half a cap higher, right? And it made up for all of your mistakes. That's the problem. We don't analyze success as much. But if you ask this question of people who have been successful over and over again, eventually they figure out what truly leads to their success. And then you can benchmark that and start incorporating that into your business process. I'm not saying that there's no place for managing a property wealth. All I'm saying is there's an 800 pound gorilla in the room and it's not you. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. So, I mean, what I wonder about that, you said the, the last seven years, that's the case. And moving forward, we, you brought up cap rates, which is exactly what I was going to ask. Cap rates are at all-time lows, at least, you know, in the vast majority of markets. And yeah. it seems probably likely they're not headed downward for the next seven years, at least as much as they went down over the last seven years. So don't get me started on that because that's one of my favorite topics. So oh, okay. um, I do started. not believe that that cap rates will not trend downward. So Interesting. here is my hypothesis on that. And then I, I didn't want to hijack your question. So why don't you finish your question? And we'll come back to this. Oh, sure. So the, the question was really driving toward what are you looking at for the next, say, seven years to, to continue with that time frame of particularly driving value in multifamily investments just to continue along that track? Is it going to continue to be cap rate compression? Is that something that we can, I don't know, count on, but is that going to be a driver or something else? I think that there's pretty much a guarantee that further cap rate compression will occur in the United States. And it will occur because cap rate compression, it is not a function of real estate. Cap rate compression is a function of monetary policy and fiscal policy, which has nothing to do with real estate. And because of Corona, the monetary and fiscal policy, which was tightening up where they were looking to raise interest rates and they were looking to take away some of the looseness in the economy and some of the looseness in, in the, the federal banking system has been reversed. And so today you have the lowest interest rates in history of the world. Like we've never seen anything like this before. Pretty much every country in the world is at zero or negative. Now, the history has shown us that recessions end very quickly because the word recession itself is truly an awful word. It's a truly awful way of measuring things. So you look at Q2 of this year, the US GDP went down like 30%, right? So it went down mm -hmm. some god awful 32% number, right? So now in Q3, right? If GDP goes up even 5%, which would be awful, by the way, given it went down 33%, you'd want it to go up, you know, most of the ways to 33%. But even if it went down 5%, you would say the recession has ended because the way recessions are designed, they're based on the previous number. So it's not really hard to go up from minus 33, right? True. So now technically the recession is either going to end in Q3 or more likely going to end in Q4, but that doesn't mean anything. 
it still is an economy that's gone from 3.8% unemployment to 10 or 11% unemployment. It's going to take us three or four years to build that back to 3.8. In those three or four years, we're going to have a weaker economy than we did in Feb. And in Feb, they were already looking at cutting interest rates. So the chances that we will cut interest rates in the next four years are extraordinarily remote. So now, even if they don't cut interest rates, and the Fed actually is talking about further cutting interest rates, which is stunning, but let's say they don't. They just hold for the next three or four years, allow the economy to recover. You're now in an interest rate environment that the world has never seen before, not just the US, but the world has never seen before. And here's what happens there. This is the part that I find multifamily investors, they they almost sell themselves out of it. They're like, cap rates can't go down any further because they're at all-time lows. Interest rates are at all-time lows. They've gone down from all-time lows. You remember in Feb, interest rates were at all-time lows. Today, they're in the in the shitter. They're, they're, <laughs> they're not at all-time lows. They're, they're, they're digging a hole to China at this point in time. That's where interest rates are. So when you have such a massive decline in interest rates, real estate becomes very lucrative because and this part of it, I've said it a hundred times, and I'm, I'm going to keep hammering it in until people really start to realize this, that it's all about yield. Multifamily is too small in the big scheme of things for it to matter. What matters is worldwide yield. When in the 80s, you could make 18% on risk-free investment by buying a government bond. And you couldn't make 18, you could make 15, right? So risk-free investment was 15. Well, risky investment had to make 20 or 25% to seem lucrative, right? Because, you know, it has to be a higher delta. There's a delta for risk. Well, today, when you buy a U.S. Treasury bond, you make 0.7%, okay? 0.7%. And when you buy real estate, and I'm not talking about risky, classy real estate, let's say you just invest in a REIT that's very diversified and they have 20 different kinds of asset classes and they're buying A and B and C and they're buying all kinds of other stuff to kind of reduce their risk. Let's say you just invest into a REIT, you'll probably make six or 7%. The beautiful thing is that difference between risk-free investment at 0.7 and real estate investment at six and a half, that delta is 5.8%. Now, I have to tell you that that delta is at all time highs Hmm. because interest rates have dropped by more than 1% just in the last five months. But cap rates in multifamily have dropped not at all. They're in the same place that they were five months ago. In fact, could be slightly higher. We've heard a little bit of anecdotal evidence that they might be picking up. So didn't real estate just become more lucrative to investors? because the spread that they get for risk has increased. They're making more. They're still making the same amount on the multifamily side, but on the bond side, on the treasury bond side, they're making less. And that's what drives cap rates in the United States. It isn't what you and I are doing because we're insignificant. Multifamily as an asset class is only a trillion dollars where bonds worldwide are 70 trillion, right? What they do matters. And so these are the people that make the big decisions that drive our cap rates down. I can't possibly see how cap rates would not go down. They have to go down. But are they going to go down in the next six months or the next 12 months? That seems unlikely because you're in the middle of a pandemic and investors are not looking at long-term trends today. They're looking at 
how much did this guy make in rents last month? What was his delinquency last month? So all of our management, all of our focus is just based on what's happening today. And we're not looking at long-term trends. So they're very unlikely to move, to go down, go up. They're, they're just going to stay flat for the next six to 12 months. But after that, you still have this absurdly accommodative monetary policy. And you've seen a recovery. You've now seen a vaccine. I can't imagine cap rates not going down from where they are today. They will go down. And what's interesting is they will actually go down more for multifamily than for other asset classes. And I'll tell you what. You look at where hotels were as a cap rate, right, in Feb. Well, they're not worth that much money anymore because hotel investors have seen what happens when a event like this strikes. So some percentage of those hotel investors, let's say 5% of those people are going to jump ship and move over to multifamily, which has done really, really well in the last five months, right? So multifamily has been one of the best asset classes, so has industrial. So majority of that money is going to flow into multifamily, a little bit is going to go into industrial, right? Maybe a little bit will go into self-storage, which did okay as well. So 5% of hotels, which is a trillion dollar industry, flows into multifamily. Now you look at office. Office is more than a trillion. Those guys are also, mm, I don't know if these people are going to come back to the office mm -hmm. after we're all said and done. If 5% of those investors decide to jump ship from office because they're now not sure about where office goes, that's another $50 billion. And most of it is going to end up in multifamily, right? And then retail is a trillion dollars. It's going to be more than 5% on retail. I mean, that is a true all-time bloodbath, right? It's Absolutely. just a total clusterfuck. I mean, nothing like this has ever been seen in retail before. Nothing like this will ever be seen in, in retail. I think that 10% of those guys are going to jump ship and say, you know what? This is the retail apocalypse. I'm going to go into some other asset classes. Well, we just talked about $200 billion flowing into a $1 trillion market. That's multifamily. When you have a 20% increase in investable resources, Guess what happens to your cap rates? They're going to go down. They probably won't go down 20%, but they might go down 10%. And if they go down 10% over the next five years, every business plan that Taylor is writing up is going to end in success, <laughs> regardless of how much he screws it up. Because cap rate is the, the 800-pound gorilla, and we are not controlling it. Monetary policies, fiscal policies, and none of those people give a damn about multifamily. They're just doing what they have to do to stabilize the U.S. economy. Right. So yeah. bottom line is, I mean, there's no way for cap rates to go up in the U.S. at this point in time. It's just insanely unlikely. Interesting. Well, I mean, it's it's definitely another big topic probably for another day, but I would certainly love to hear your thoughts about some of the, the longer term implications of these things like the accommodative monetary policy. I mean, looking at the, say, 30 year time span is this we, we don't have 30 years so uh, the current financial system at most has 10 years left so that obviously there is a worldwide meltdown coming you you need to google things like debt jubilee you need to google oh, things yeah. like hyperinflation because either we're going to end up with a debt jubilee or we're going to end up with hyperinflation i think that if you read the bible there's a section in leviticus that talks about the fact that the israelites Every 50th year, they used to have a debt jubilee. And everybody used to know which year it was. Everyone would kind of accommodate for that and kind of get rid of their debts and stop lending a few years before that because they would know that that year, any debts that you had would be wiped, right? That was called a debt jubilee. And the concept is two and a half thousand years old. 
Well, I think we have a debt jubilee coming because at some point we can't even pay the interest, right? So when does the musical chairs game stop? When we cannot pay the interest, forget about the principal. There is no way the world can pay back its principal. We're already at 300% of GDP on debt. So that's impossible, right? But what we can do is we can pay the interest back and that's what keeps the musical chairs going. But if, if you look at the math and, and the, today people are getting better at math because you know the COVID introduced everybody to the concept of exponential growth, right? Three cases, five cases, 10 cases, 100, 1,000, 10,000, 100,000, <laughs> a million, yeah. right? We've seen it go in months, right? That's exponential growth. Human beings are used to linear growth. So now everybody's getting a math lesson. Well, if you look at the exponential growth of debt, there is no way we make it to 2030 from here. We can't. It's impossible because a significant percentage of the world's countries will stop paying interest before that time because a hundred percent of their tax receipts will just be interest right so yeah. i mean keep this in mind that this this game has to end we don't have 30 years it so do we buy gold guns and mres or you know how do we get ready well, for that you 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 forgot bullets i mean guns <laughs> yeah, no use without bullets you can't trade guns but you can definitely trade bullets yeah right so yeah. so I, and and bitcoin right so obviously the answer is that all of these assets are going to be worth a lot at some point, which I cannot determine, right? So if you ask me when, the answer is, the only thing I'm sure of is it must happen. But when, I don't know. So far, central banks have shown incredible talent with their pretend and extend program. 10 or 15 years ago, I wouldn't have thought that we would have made it to this point, but we did. So they seem to keep coming up with new innovations, all of them designed to rob Main Street and give to Wall Street. And uh, so far, they've been successful. I mean, at, at some point, either, you know, nobody wants to buy our bonds anymore, or there's a Main Street revolt, which I don't think is going to happen. The American people have become too passive for that. But I, I do think that you are going to see a stop in the future. But I don't want that to hijack our, our program. But yes, there, there's a full stop coming. It's either hyperinflation or debt jubilee. I'm leaning in favor of debt jubilee. Interesting. Wow. Well, on that happy note, we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. <laughs> All right, Neil, I've got three questions I ask every guest on the show. Are you ready? Yeah, I'm ready. All right, great. Number one, what is the best investment you ever made other than in your education? Oh, um, best investment I ever made was that I hired a person to watch the cameras at one of my properties. So they spent about, I spent about $300. They watched the cameras and they looked for people that had pets. They followed them up the staircases to their doors and then looked in Appfolio to see if pet rent was mentioned. And if it wasn't, they took a blurry cam picture of them, send it to the property manager by, you know, looking at monthly fees that we gathered on 30 people, looking at their $300 a month one-time deposit, and then looking at a 16X multiple on NOI on sale, we made $245,000 on a $250 investment. Cool. Wow. That is excellent. <laughs> we had the best investment. Now we go to the worst investment. What is the worst investment you ever made? South Shore, Chicago, I bet on that neighborhood turning around based on the Obama Presidential Library, the Tiger Woods golf course, the, 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 the championship golf course that he's building, and the McCafferty's were basically, they bought the U.S. steel plant. 
the lesson I learned that these kind of big projects, sometimes they go and sometimes they don't. And when they don't, the bet that you made, you can't even break even. So horrible mess. Ouch. Wow. My favorite question here at the end of the show is what is the most important lesson that you've learned in business and investing? That's a good one. Lots of lessons learned. I would have to say the one that I care about the most is pick your partners carefully. I find that we spend so much time looking at properties, so much time looking at cities, but then the people that we work with, we don't invest enough time on that. This is similar to how we date sometimes, right? Don't spend enough time figuring out who's the right person to date. And your partners matter so much. They change your destiny, the destiny of your investors and the destiny of your company more so than any other factor. And I found that picking your partners carefully is something that most people don't do, but it really matters. It's like we think it's an eight pound gorilla where it's an 800 pound gorilla. Sorry, I, I love gorillas. Clearly. <laughs> Well, that is a great point. And it's something that you bring it up. It's definitely something that I've noticed. A lot of folks are very eager to form business partnerships with new people they don't really know, or they haven't really quite met or vetted or don't really understand their history. And that is a fantastic point. Love it. Neil, I appreciate everything you brought to us today, this discussion about data and where we stand today and all of it. I think it's so fascinating. And I want to make sure that we talk before the debt jubilee happens, if it happens. So I get your, uh, your take when on that. Happens. But uh, when <laughs> it happens, yes. But if folks want to get in touch with you, where can they find you? Well, we take all of our research and put it together on one website, multifamilyu.com, which is multifamily universities. We do about 20 to 25 deep dive events each year. Yesterday, we had 900 people signed up for student housing. So we talked about student housing in the COVID age, and we had experts in student housing that are managing 35,000 beds wow. come in and speak with candor about their incredible challenges, how their world has turned upside down. Uh, soon, we'll be doing senior housing in the age of COVID. We'll be doing storage in the age of COVID. And of course, as you can imagine, we've already done multifamily, and we will do that again. So really any kind of commercial asset class, including multifamily, if you're willing to learn and you wanna come into a no pitch zone where no one is allowed to say things like, hey, I've got this property and I need money. None of that ever happens at any of our events. Check out multifamilyu.com. There's more than 40,000 of you that sign up for our events each year. And it's meant to be a true community service. It's a, it's a connection building mechanism. There's no conference, there's no pitch, there's no $100 kit, there's no $1,000 subscription. People come in, they learn, they engage. Nice. I love that. A lot of great content and fantastic topics. I'm going to have to get on the next one. Thanks once again for joining us today. To everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Very much appreciated. Helps other people learn about the show. If you know anyone who could use a little bit more passive wealth in their lives, please share the show with them and bring them to the tribe. And if you want to go back, you want to hear one of Neil's colleagues who's previously appeared on the show to talk about systems and using virtual assistants in a real estate business, check the link in the show notes. That'll be in there. Great interview with her as well. So love it. Fantastic. We're getting a lot of great content out of their tribe. 
really appreciate it. Thanks so much again for tuning in. Have a great rest of your day, great week. We'll talk to you in the next one. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye.